following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. If you want to open your Bibles up, we're going to be in Psalm 126 today. It'll be up on the screen as well. I hope this morning, as we've been setting our hearts on worship, and I hope over the last couple of weeks, as uh, Bill has been preaching through this series on the songs of the sojourn, that our hearts are being captured into this idea of moving intentionally somewhere. And not just going through life randomly or just happening to do this or happening to do that, but there's this, this picture, even as the worship service has been so beautifully organized this morning, every movement of it has been intentionally leading us to the throne of God. And it's been leading us to His Word so we can get a greater picture and a greater understanding of who He is. So I'm going to read Psalm 126 for us. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouths were filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like strings of the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Let's pray together. Father, we ask this morning as we come before your word that your spirit would be present, that you would awaken our hearts, that you would give us a desire for you, not for our own sake, Lord, but for your glory in our lives and among the nations. And I pray that you would be honored in all that is said and all that we do in the next few minutes. In your son's holy and precious name we pray, amen. So life's a journey. That's what we've been talking about. We've been going through this series, and it's always a blessing for me. Like I said, last time I was up here, I've been out of town a little bit, so I kind of get to listen to Bill's sermons in quick bits. So I've heard three or four of them this week on this series, and I can remember about two months ago when he came and he said he was going to be preaching on the songs of ascent, and he was going to be talking about this idea of our sojourn through life. I thought it was such a great concept, because as I think about our lives, that's exactly what it is. It's this picture of a journey that we're on. And it's really interesting in life how often several things happen to us in the midst of this journey. Sometimes we get so focused on the destination of where we're going that we miss the moment that we're in. Other times we get so overwhelmed in the moments we're in, we lose sight of the destination. And as Christians, when you think about that from a spiritual perspective, how true is it that we often do that exact same thing? that we so often can get so caught up in what is happening around us, that we so quickly take our eyes off the one who is ordained and in control of all that is going on around us. I was listening um, in preparation for this. A few years back, Steve Lawson, some of you recognize that name. If you don't, don't worry. Um, He preached a sermon, or gave a talk anyways, on this same concept. And he titled the, the talk, After the Darkness, Light. And the idea that he was really challenged from Psalm 126 and was challenging his congregation with, literally, was this picture of realizing that there's much darkness around, but yet God, in his timing, brings about light. God, in his timing, brings us through the darkness 
into this beautiful and glorious light. And as I thought about that, I was thinking about, you know, the title for how I was going to approach this. And I used a phrase that is kind of trite almost in Christian circles. We use it a lot. Christ our hope. This idea that, you know, Christ is our hope. If I said that, everyone in here would say, yes, Christ is our hope. That's good. But what does that mean? And more importantly, what does that look like in the way we live our lives? What does that look like in the way we go through each day and in all that we encounter? And the way I've kind of broken it down as I've been preparing and as I've been thinking about this picture of Psalm 126 is it's learning to see in the midst of darkness. And by the way, let me put a disclaimer up front on this sermon. You and I are not able to see in the midst of darkness without the Holy Spirit working in our lives and opening our eyes to see in the midst of darkness. We can't do it. If you've ever been out in the night, you know, Hilton Head Island um, is known for having lots of billboards and big signs. Not really at all. No, it's completely dark at night. If you're a tourist, you can't find anything. Some of you had a hard time finding this place. But if, if you go out at night... Into the utter darkness, you can't see anything without the assistance of some kind of light. And it's the same thing with us. You know, in order to go through and actually see in the midst of life, we need God to open our eyes. And and the picture that came to my mind was the the story of Elijah. And this is one from 2 Kings chapter 6. He and his servant are in the city called Dothan. And the king of Aram is frustrated with Elijah and is after Elijah and wants to capture this prophet and basically put him to death. And he finds out they're in the city. And what ends up happening is during the night, an army from Aram literally comes and surrounds the walls, chariots, horses, and the city is surrounded and without hope. And the servant wakes up in the morning and he looks out and all he sees are the the chariots. And he's looking at Elijah and he says, What are we going to do? We have lost all hope. There's nothing we can do. And Elijah looks to God and says, Lord, open his eyes that he may see. And suddenly the servant's eyes are opened. And behind the physical horses and chariots surrounding the city are these flaming horses and chariots, these angelic beings of God that have surrounded those. And Elijah looks at him and says, God is in control. Greater is he who is with us than he who is in the world. And the point being, his eyes were opened and he was able to see. And so the picture of this psalm, to give you a little background, um, what's going on, and Andrew did a fabulous job of kind of introing it with the Old Testament reading today. This is going to take a little Old Testament context in order for this psalm to make sense. So let me go into that. So let me just do a side note really quick. One of the things that Christians today are so notorious for is being excited about Christ and going through the Christian world without knowing the Word of God. You know, I, I always talk about how I teach seniors, and I got a couple of graduates sitting in the front row, and I, and I literally probably say this once a week, but if you're going to give your whole life over to God, and He's revealed Himself through this book, we need to open this book up and know what's in it. And so when we go into Old Testament context like this, hopefully a lot and a lot of you in this room have opened it up and have read and, and have a full understanding of, okay, when we talk about captivity, here's what was going on. But if not, let me give a little help to this situation. What's happening is the Old Testament Jews had their glorious days, the days that we often study, the days of David, Solomon, when things were great, when the kingdom was in its you know, full reign and its heyday. And then shortly after Solomon passed away, the kingdom was divided into two. And you had Israel up north, and you had Judah down south. 
And basically what ended up happening for the ensuing hundreds of years in Israel is they completely abandoned God. They completely turned away from God. And God gave them over to their abandonment. And God literally allowed the army of Assyria to come in and wipe out the northern kingdom. And then a few hundred years later, the southern kingdom, although they had their ups and downs, did the same exact thing. They learned nothing from watching their northern brothers. They went through the same motions. And they abandoned God. And what God did was allowed the Babylonians to come in and wipe them out and take them into exile. And Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city where the beautiful temple of Solomon had built, the city where people gathered to worship God, where the cloud literally dwelt, you know, as if you know, the earth could contain God's presence. But the presence of God, the symbolic presence of God in the temple, and yet it had been wiped out destroyed, the bricks broken down, the stones destroyed, the whole thing burnt to the ground, and the people were sent into exile. And so when we get to Psalm 126, what Psalm 126 is referring to is the people of Israel, 70 years later, after Jerusalem had been destroyed, had been allowed to return to the land, had been allowed to go back to Jerusalem, had been allowed to rebuild the temple. And in that picture comes the words, of this, this psalm. So today, if you're an outline person, I often joke about outlines. Um, I'm a big outline person. If you are, there are three points to this, and they're very simple. Verses one through, th- one through three are the results of God's working. Verse four, the response to God's working. And verses five through six, the reliance upon God's future working. So verses one through three, the results of God's working. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Let me stop there before I even go to the next couple of verses. The Lord had restored their fortunes. The Lord had allowed them to return to the land. The Lord had allowed them to rebuild. But let me just say this kind of as a caveat to that, because it's something we need to think about. It was God's great power that brought them back into the land. We'll talk about that in a second. But it was also God's permission that allowed them to be taken out of the land. We live in a time and a day where talking about sin and talking about punishment and talking about the justice and the holiness of God are not real popular topics to put on the table. It's a lot easier to remind everyone of how much God loves them, and it's very true. But at the same time, you can't have a picture of God's love without God's justice. They're intermingled. Look no further than the cross. At the cross, you see this amazing picture of love being poured out for God's people and justice being poured out upon God's Son. And the same thing is happening here in the Old Testament. You have this group of people who had been literally kicked out of their land, taken to a foreign land because they had left the worship of their God. God gave them over to it. And yet God restored them. And God brought them back to their land. Their fortunes were restored. And they were rebuilding. And the way it's phrased, and it's a beautiful phrase, we were like those who dream. Have you ever had a dream that was so vivid and so real that you woke up the next morning and were trying to figure out if it really happened? I don't know if anybody in here has ever had that experience. Or maybe this is one that Neely and I have laughed about over the years. Um, Have you ever had a dream where in your dream somebody did something to you? And then you see them the next day and you're a little bit angry at them and you're not sure why. 
Somebody, yeah, some of you are like, yes, I have. Literally, not even joking, two weeks ago, my wife woke up, and she was just mad at me for about an hour. And I looked at her, and I was like, what did I do? And she looked at me and said, it was a weird dream I had. I don't know. And it was one of those moments of, I'm sorry, I won't do it again. I don't know how to fix this. But, but the whole point being, it, it seemed real. And in this situation, it's the exact opposite. What you have are the Israelites looking at it, and they've been restored to their land. And by the way, the way this restoration came about was another kingdom came to power after the Babylonians. It was the Persian kingdom. And there was a king named Cyrus who decided he was going to allow the Jews to return to their land. There's a great quote. John Hume puts it this way. It was not Cyrus's valor, but the Lord's power. Not Cyrus's policy, but God's wisdom that overthrowing the enemies gave to Cyrus the victory and put into his heart to set his people at liberty. Translation, Cyrus didn't decide to send the people back. God used Cyrus to send the people back to the land. And to the people who had been in the land, had been in captivity, it seemed unreal. It seemed so unexpected. Where did that come from? It couldn't be possible. It reminds me, if you know the story of Peter in Acts chapter 12, if you remember, Peter's been put in prison, and he's sitting, you know, it's late in one evening, and he's shackled on both sides to guards, and they're prison bars, and they're in the cellar, and they have all these different situations, and suddenly this angel appears, and this angel leads Peter out and takes him into the street, and the, and the Bible says, if you read the book of Acts, it says, Peter thought he was having a vision. He didn't think it was real until all of a sudden the angel was gone, and he was standing in the middle of the street, and he started walking. And that's kind of what's going on here with these people. It was so unexpected what God had done, how God had done this, and in what way he had done this through King Cyrus, that they could not believe it. And the other thing that should be noted, by the way, is when the people went back, it wasn't immediate. I mentioned before, they were in captivity for 70 years. They were 70 years in slavery, in submission, and under the rule of a foreign government. And so God works, but God works in his time. You know, a, a side application to this, I had a professor in college that always used this. These were his two phrases, and I've shared this with some of you before. God grows things. God is not in a hurry. And he put those things together to make the point that often in life, God works in amazing ways, but God's timing is not always the timing that we desire. Those people had no desire to be in captivity for 70 years or one day for that matter. And yet God in his perfect timing brought them out of captivity at just the moment. And then you get to verse 2 and it describes even further their, their reaction. It says, then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. They were so full of joy, so full of joy that they couldn't help but just laugh. You ever had that moment in life? Some of you have, where something happens that's just so amazing and gives you so much joy and excitement that all you can do is have that big smile on your face. One of my favorite things at being at weddings is watching as the bride's walking down the aisle when the groom's standing right here, just waiting. And if you watch the groom, it's the best moment because what they have is this unbelievable smile 
on their face or these tears rolling down their cheeks because they're seeing the beauty of their wife who they're about to be united with for the rest of their life and they are full of joy. And it's the same thing with these people. As they're looking on, as they're looking at what God has done, the way God has restored their fortune, they're so full of joy that they're speechless. And the result of that, by the way, is really intriguing. If you look at this again, the end of verse 2, it says, Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. What ended up happening was as the people outside of Israel looked at what God had done and looked at the response of His people, they began to worship and to say, look at what great things God has done in His people. And I ask you this, because this is a tough question. Has there ever been a moment in life where the way situations have played out or the way you've responded to situations, it's called, caused people standing on the outside to look on and say, God has done great things. And that's hard. Because often in life, you know, we miss that. You know, the two struggles we often have are in a situation like this where things go well, where there's victory, where there's success, where there's achievement, we often forget God and turn to us. And pride starts to take over. Or on the other side of it, often when things go bad and there's adversity and struggles, instead of turning to God, we turn to woe is me and look inward and try to fix it ourselves. And often we miss the opportunity to cause others to praise God because we respond wrong in situations. And by the way, in light of those two examples, I will say this. This doesn't just happen when things go well. In this situation, in this context, they had responded by praising God and laughing in joy because of what God had done. It was a wonderful moment. But you can also cause others to praise God when moments are horrible. How you handle adversity is usually one of the strongest opportunities to witness. If anybody in here struggles with sharing the gospel, how many of of you in this room have a hard time sharing the gospel with people? Anybody? we got some honest people. That's good. Um, You know, it's a battle. I mean, let's be honest, if you, if you are talking about going up and sharing the gospel, it's a hard thing to do. I'll, I'll, I'll be brutally honest with me, I am far more comfortable getting up and talking in front of 400 people than I am talking to a random stranger about Jesus. Uh, and some of you are looking at me like, I would never get up in front of 400 people. But the, but the point being, it's a hard thing to do, but often our greatest ability to share the truth of God does not come in just going out and preaching the word. It comes in the way we respond to the triumphs and the adversity that we face in life. God opens amazing doors through both of those. And joy, by the way, the joy that they're experiencing doesn't come just because of circumstances. I want to really stress this today, and Bill preached on this a couple weeks ago, but I'm going to put a little reminder in here because I think it's worth our time to be reminded that in this moment, they were joyful because of what God was doing because it was amazing. But they had the same reason to be joyful even if they weren't being led out of captivity. And the reason being, their God had not changed. Our joy can't be based on circumstantial happenings. If your joy is based on circumstantial happenings, you're going to be deeply, deeply disappointed in life over and over and over. Our joy needs to be rooted in the very character of God. 
in the very character of Christ. You know, the title of this, Christ our hope. Our hope doesn't change based on our circumstances. I was never more profoundly impacted by this concept than when I was a 16-year-old kid. I was on a mission trip, um, and I didn't even know what a mission trip was back at that point. I just signed up to go to Mexico because it seemed like a fun thing to do, and some of my friends were. And we went down to this little village in Reynosa, Mexico. Some of you have been there. And it was this little colonia, and it was, you walked in, and literally the buses pulled in, dropped you off, and it was built on a garbage dump. You can picture the whole thing. There's just trash everywhere. And we're building these little houses that are about the size of a 10 by 10 room for families of five or 10 people. And I'll never forget the joy that I saw in two, two moments down there. There were two men, probably in their 40s or 50s at that time, who had given their life to Christ and who had responded to what the missions group was doing down there. And the two things I saw, the first one was this 50-year-old man out at a VBS helping with little children playing kickball. And it was so profound to me because he was the most excited kickball player I've ever seen in my life. And he was so into it, and he was having such a great time. And I just thought to myself, even as a 16-year-old, I was looking at it going, this is your life, this is your world. How can you have that joy? And as I got to have some conversations and to hear him speak and hear some talking and so on, I found really quickly his joy had nothing to do with what was going on around him. His rejoicing was completely because of his hope in Christ. And there was another man whose house we were working on. I'll never forget this either. We had spent, you know, five days building this thing. And he picture a bunch of teenagers banging hammers. It wasn't pretty, but it was constructed. And after we finished, at the end of the week, this guy went out and bought six sodas, which was like two weeks worth of wages for him, and brought them to each person that was there and started handing them out. And he had the biggest expression this smile that could break a mirror on his face because he was so excited about what God was doing. He wasn't just excited about his house. He was grateful, but he was so excited about how God had brought it about through us. And so as we look at these verses and as we go, I need to keep moving in this, but it's, it's a huge question to say, is our hope, is our hope built on our circumstances or is our hope built on our Savior And in light of that, as we read those verses, is our mouth filled with laughter? Are we joyful? And are we causing others to worship God by the way we're responding to the circumstances of life? You get to point two, just verse four, response to God's work. Verse four is a very short verse. It says, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams of the Negev. Now, let me put a little context behind that because that's a strange verse to say, let's make a whole point out of. But what's happening here is they're grateful and they're rejoicing because some of the people have returned to the land. But the reality is, out of all of Israel, as they've been sent into exile and scattered, only some, about 50,000 in total, were returning to the land. And there were Israelites and there were Jews scattered everywhere who still hadn't returned. Not only that, as they went back to start rebuilding, there was constant affliction, constant challenge. If you ever read the book of Nehemiah or Ezra, you see this continual battle from people on the outside trying to get them to stop. And yet they're praying, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams of the Negev. What they wanted to see was God not only do what he had done, but God continue to do it all the more. Now, the people that didn't come, I'll use this just as an aside because I thought it was a really interesting thought. John Calvin wrote about the people who stayed back. Many openly refused the benefit 
when it was offered them. The benefit he's referring to there is the benefit of returning to the land when it was offered to them, as they were not wanting many difficulties and impediments to be encountered by those who availed themselves to this liberty, granted them by the good pleasure of the king. What Calvin goes into, and it's a long discussion, we'll just make a little side note on it, but Calvin says it's really interesting to note how many of the people didn't return to the land by choice because they didn't want to encounter the struggles and the trials. In other words, they missed out on all the joy and the rejoicing and the rebuilding because they were willing, and remember, they were in exile. They were enslaved. They had been scattered abroad. They were content where they were, and they were afraid to step out and trust their God to continue to do it. Now, there were others that didn't have the opportunity, but some were choosing to stay there. And so, as we look at this, the prayer is, Lord, finish the work that you've begun Finish what you've started. Now, real quick, the context of the Negev, streams of the Negev, what's going on there? The Negev was the south country, and what it was is basically a desert south of Jerusalem whose riverbeds at certain times of year would be bone dry. If you can picture walking into a riverbed where it's just solid ground with cracks running through it, there's no water, everything is dried out, the plants are withered, it's just one of those situations. And yet, at other times of the year, when the rainy season would come, the waters would come rushing through the river and the land would be restored and plentiful. The, you know, the plants would sprout and everything would be restored completely. And what they're praying is, Lord, just like the dry season is taken over by the rainy season and the river begins to rush, restore Jerusalem. Restore your temple. What we're building is just a small small glimpse of what it was in the days of Solomon. May the people come flooding back in like the floods of a river. May you do such a mighty work. And their desire, by the way, wasn't just numbers. Their desire was the spiritual restoration of Israel. And so as I think about that and I think about us as we look to apply this to our lives, what do our prayers look like? How often are we praying for God to do such a work as what they prayed for. That God would flood this place with people, not for the sake of filling chairs, but that he would flood this place with people for the sake of people being restored to him. For the sake of not only saving people, but here it is, for the sake of him receiving the glory that's due his name. How often is that the heartbeat behind what we prayed. When you read Paul's letters, Paul constantly was praying for Christ's work to be completed in the churches. That Christ's people would continue to grow and mature in their faith. That more would be added to their numbers. That was his heart. That was his desire. Is that ours? You know, as, you, as you think about something as simple as, you know, as the Shanks were up here talking about life groups. You know, for some of you, as you listen to that, you're kind of in the, okay, look at that card maybe. Some of you thought about it, and you're like, I've been stuff like that. But can you imagine that situation? Does that intimidate some people in this room? It didn't intimidate me, I know that. If I said, okay, there are 10 couples coming over, and I know none of them, and we're going to start investing life into each other, and I'm going to open up to them, that's very intimidating. But yet it's through things like that that God grows his people. It's through things like that that the people who are in this church that are here only on Sundays get connected on a deeper level. And so for us, 
is our prayer, is our heartbeat as a church to see God turn dry land into rushing waters, to see spiritual drought turn into maturity and growth and excitement for his kingdom. Which leads us to the last two verses. And the third point, reliance on God's future working. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Charles Spurgeon summarized these verses in in these few words, and they're powerful. Winners of souls are first weepers of souls. Winners of souls are first weepers of souls. And what the author's doing here is giving us this picture of, of farming and this picture of going out and sowing seed and seeing it sprout. And, and I, as a kid, I grew up in Ohio, this small you know, farm town in the middle of nowhere, one stoplight. We had a subway. It was a very big times. And I grew up on a farm, and on the corner of the farm we lived, way around the corner was my grandfather. And one of the things I remember from my childhood that I loved was going out and riding in the tractor. And sometimes what he would let me do, and and I never understood it until later on in life, is he would allow me to get in the car with him in the afternoons. Usually it was a Sunday afternoon. And we would just drive around the fields. And it was literally that classic. We're going about 20 miles an hour just looking at the fields. And he would just talk about the weather. And he'd talk about the fields. And he'd talk about the seed. And at the time I was bored, but I thought it was cool to hang out with my grandfather. I didn't know what he was doing. But in his world, because he was a farmer... The seed was everything. And if the rains didn't come, or if the rains came too much, the seed wasn't going to bear fruit. And if it didn't bear fruit, there would be no harvest. And if there was no harvest, there would be no money. And so his world was very oriented in that way. And in the same way, we have this picture of he who goes out weeping, in verse 6, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. And that example is of a physical farmer throwing seed. And and of a physical farmer, if you think about this, a physical farmer isn't putting his hope in himself as he sows the seed. A physical farmer is putting his hope in the seed that is sown, that it would grow up. And it's the same thing with us spiritually. As we go out and as we seek to see God do these amazing things that are being prayed over in these verses, these amazing things that he's in the middle of, Are we putting much hope in ourselves or are we putting much hope in the seed that's being sown? Are we putting it in dry ground or as Spurgeon put it, are we watering the ground with our tears? And by the way, the the tears there, as I read probably 10, 15 different commentaries, there were two things that that seemed to go different directions, but I've kind of concluded they're both hand in hand. And the tears there are A, tears of repentance. Tears of repentance over sin or B, and I think they're united, tears of lostness that people are in the middle of wanting to see them come back. And ultimately, if you combine the two, what you see is the people were pouring out tears over the brokenness of this world in their own lives and in the lives of others. And what they were seeing, and this is the beauty, is what God had done for them. And because of that, they had the hope of what God would do for the others. They were seeing how God had brought them back to the temple and they were hoping in how he'd used them and he'd transformed them and he was at work in their lives. He would do the same in the lives of those around them, in the lives of the other Israelites who weren't back in the land. So I ask, when was the last time you wept over souls? 
Not over circumstances, over souls. Yeah, I was reminded at another professor in college, his name was Mr. Corley. He spent 40 years as a missionary in Iran. And he came back and was back for about four or five years. And he was a professor and basically just taught missions-related things. And I remember one class period, stands out in my mind still to this day, where he was asked, it was kind of a Q&A day, and somebody raised their hand and they're like, why'd you leave? You know, why, why'd you come back? Were you just ready to retire, take a break? What was the deal? And his eyes welled up. I mean, it was, it was that dramatic, you know, two-minute pause where at first you're really curious, and then everybody sort of gets uncomfortable looking around, like, should we do something? Do we need to help him? What's happening? And his eyes welled up, and tears began to flow. And as the tears began to flow, in a broken voice, he looked out and he said, hardest decision I've ever made in my life. We left because we were getting pressure, and people were following us, and our lives were going to be in danger. But we also, by leaving, left so many souls without hope. And it was this long, dead silence. He was a man who knew what it was to weep over souls, to weep over sin, to weep over the lost. My prayer for us as we think about these things is not just to challenge us, are we weeping? We can't manufacture tears. We can't manufacture, ah, I'm heartbroken over the lost. But what we can do is take our eyes off of the world and turn our eyes to the hope that we have in Christ. And the more we stop and we meditate on the cross. Matt said it this morning in his perfect statement. Silence is hard because when you really get honest in the silence, you start to see all of your junk. But you know what else you see when you see all of your junk? is an amazing God who in spite of our junk, has loved us anyways. And what you see as you start to do that more and more and more is a heart being transformed inside you to see souls come to the Lord. And here's bringing it back to the whole point, not for the sake of winning souls, but for the sake of every person that doesn't know Christ is missing out on the very thing for which we're on this earth to do, bring glory to God. And the more people that get to know Christ, the more glory that is expressed and praised towards our King in heaven. So as a church, this is such a timely passage, such a timely passage in light of the reality of you know, all of the transition, all of the craziness of we're going to be in a new building. We got these cards. We need help. We need this. We need that. We're going to be renovating here. We're going to be doing a lot of things. But here's the key. We're renovating this building, not for the sake of having a nicer facility. If that's all it is, we've missed the boat completely. We're doing all of this for the purpose of seeing God do amazing things. We're doing all this because just like in this psalm, we've reflected on what God has done and we're praying over and excited about what God will continue to do in and amongst this congregation. And here's the real beauty. We're not even doing it to fill more seats. You know, ideally, this place would start to empty out. And what I mean by that is, as people become enamored with Christ, they would want to go out into the world 
and reach the lost. I think of Jeff and Becky Peters as the perfect picture of this. That people would be so built up in Christ that they can't help but say, I want to go out and I want to reach people for Christ. Whether that be somebody down the street, whether that be somebody in Haiti, whether that be somebody across the world. I want to impact the world for Christ. That's where we're at. That's what we're going. And that is, to me, a reason for rejoicing. But at the same time, our rejoicing isn't because of what God is doing only. Our rejoicing is because of who God is and the fact that He is a King who deserves our praise in all things. Let me pray for us. Father, as we look and think about this passage, as we think about this concept of Christ our hope, let us ever be reminded that our hope is not in circumstances. Our hope is not in success. Our hope ultimately shouldn't be taken away by adversity. Our hope is in you because your character does not change, because you are good, and because you are worthy of our adoration. Allow us, like the Israelites, to rejoice in what you've done and what you are doing and excitedly and fully engaged, anticipating what you will prepare and are in the midst of preparing and will continue to do. We ask for your blessing and for your working and ultimately for you to receive the glory. It's in your name we pray. Amen.